0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Good to have you here. Today we are jumping into a follow-up episode from last week. If you joined us last week, we talked about the Millennial Kingdom, and that's kind of something that we've been talking about throughout this series so far, this End Time series. If you're just joining, then I highly recommend you check out the previous episodes. But anyway, we've been leading up to this point because if you uh, tuned in for the first episode, this idea of a Millennial Kingdom, which is basically a period of time where Jesus is ruling as king... Some say it's literally a thousand years. Some say it's a figurative period of time. By the way, it's a period of time that Jesus is supposedly reigning for uh, before the final judgment. And so when that happens, whether it's in the future, uh, some even people think it's already happened. Some people think it's happening right now in a spiritual sense. When you believe that happens has some very big consequences on your end times beliefs. And so we have been looking at all the different elements that are tied to that In the last few weeks, we looked at the binding of Satan, we looked at whether Jesus is king right now or in the future, we looked at things even like uh, God's promises to Abraham and whether they were already fulfilled or not. So all these things have been adding up to the same conclusion over and over again, and that's that we are living in the millennial kingdom right now. It's a spiritual reality that's unfolding, and it will end when Jesus returns and basically ushers in eternity and the final judgment. So... Last week, we talked about the Millennial Kingdom and how Jesus, how the Apostles, how even John the Baptist, everybody recognized that this idea of the kingdom was an imminent reality. It was an imminent thing that was about to happen. It was about to unfold. It was a spiritual reality, just like in the episode on the Israel and the Third Temple that we talked about, how the temple, this whole temple stuff being happening in Israel right now with the Third Temple and them preparing sacrifices and all this kind of stuff, this is not prophecy being fulfilled. You are being deceived if you believe that this is Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy is not being fulfilled in Israel. This is a great deception, and we talked about the reasons why. Hopefully, as we get into deeper things in this series, you'll understand better why I say that, but the temple was always a spiritual reality. The apostles believed that. Jesus taught that. Everybody believed that the temple, the final temple, the final reality, is a spiritual thing. It's the church. It's the body of believers. It is the Lord's table. It's the kingdom. All these different words spoken throughout the scriptures by both Jesus and the apostles, they're all pointing to and referring to the same reality. It's a spiritual reality where we have communion with God because of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. That's when the church, the kingdom... All these different things happened. And so today we are diving into a kind of a supportive topic to this because there's just so much to this millennial kingdom. Obviously, there's so many different topics that are supportive. If I were to make one episode for all of these things, it would probably take me more than I can talk. So today we're talking about Revelation 20. And we're talking about some specific things that are happening in Revelation 20 that are added on to this idea of a millennial kingdom. We didn't get a chance to address those in the last episode. So again, if if this is the first time you're joining us, then I would highly recommend at least go and watch the last episode so you understand the context. But today we're looking deeper at Revelation 20. We're going to look at certain things like the first resurrection, the timing of Satan's release. We'll look a little bit about that. Um, We're going to look at this idea of the saints coming to life and ruling for a thousand years with Christ. What does that mean? Or ruling for the millennium, let's put it that way. Because if you remember, the word thousand in the original language in Greek is chilioi. It's plural. It's not thousand, it's thousands of years. And again, we looked at how numbers were used throughout scripture. And many times when numbers are used, they're used figuratively. Now there are times, of course, when they're pointing to physical realities. There are some examples that we gave, but there was a lot of times, like when God says that his mercy is to the thousands of generations or a thousand generations. Does that mean that after a thousand generations, that's it, his mercy's done? Of course not. That's just saying it's using a number that we can't even comprehend, a thousand generations, to paint a picture of God's expansive mercy. And so in the same way, this is a plural word, thousands. So the millennium is really just a long period of time. And certainly if you believe like I do that Jesus will return soon, I believe in our lifetimes. But that's besides the point. If, if that's a reality, and we're living in the 11th hour right now, which I do believe we are, it's already been 2,000 years. That's a long time. That is an extremely long time. And so that's appropriate. But in either case... Another thing we'll look at is, are, I should say, are some Old Testament prophecies that a lot of dispensationalists and futurists use as a way to prove this idea of a future reign of Christ. And we're going to look at those Old Testament prophecies and see how they are taken out of context and what they truly are talking about. So, remember the previous episodes? Remember the the book of Revelation? is a symbolic book. It is apocalyptic literature. It's a vision, okay? It's the most cryptic book in the entire Bible. It's full of symbols. So we can't take things too literally. We have to be careful. And I hope that you'll take that to heart as you go through this series and we look at more things in Revelation. We're just barely getting started. We're gonna look at the book of Daniel. And again, Daniel and Revelation, they work together. You can't really understand Revelation unless you study the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is full of symbols. I mean, the beasts are not real beasts. They're kingdoms and kings and political powers. They're systems. And so with that in mind, we have to really question anybody who's who's interpreting Revelation so literally that it creates a lot of problems. So the first topic for today that we're looking at is this idea of a first resurrection. And that comes from Revelation 20, everything's in Revelation 20, but verses 4 through 6. So let's jump to the text really quick. And this includes a lot of the other things. So then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. We'll talk about the mark of the beast, but not in this episode. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. For over such the second death has no power. That's an important phrase. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, a lot in that, a lot in that, but if, if you've been with me for the last few episodes, you've been with me since the beginning of the series, it, it shouldn't seem so cryptic anymore. It should seem actually quite obvious what it's talking about, but we will get to that. Remember first and foremost this, that every passage that speaks about the resurrection, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it speaks about the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous at the same time. There is not a single passage that refers to this idea of a a physical first resurrection. And then, you know, then there's another resurrection of the wicked, or uh, the resurrection of the righteous. So basically you have like three different resurrections. And so that's nowhere in Scripture. We have to really, so then we have to ask, well, what does this really mean then, if that's the case? But let's first establish that with the Word. So in John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29, Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So pretty clear, you have resurrection globally. Some of the people who are resurrected will be resurrected to judgment or the second death. Remember I said, keep that phrase in mind when he said that the The people who experience, when John said that the first resurrection, blessed is he who shares in it, over such the second death has no power. Keep that in mind. That's what it's talking about. That when you're resurrected, if you're in Christ, you have faith in Jesus, you put your trust in him, you're guaranteed. The spirit is your guarantee of eternal life. So that when you're resurrected, you're not resurrected to the second death, which is the judgment, lake of fire, hell, it's a future reality, you're resurrected to eternal life. And so the second death doesn't have any power over you. But compare this to several, several verses. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Same thing spoken about the prophet Daniel, Acts 24, verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust now this is not saying there will be resurrections plural it says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust meaning one event for two types of people pretty consistent with everything else look at second thessalonians man that's a tough one to say second thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 8 the judgment at Christ's coming again another thing about when when Jesus returns Everything is happening. It's not, you know, there's no secret rapture. We talked about that, but everything is happening at the same time. And that includes the resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous. Verse five, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction, those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So all of this is happening at the same time. What's happening in verse 7 to grant relief to you and also to inflict vengeance in verse 8 on those who do not know God? This is a a summary, a bird's eye view of what's happening in, in the end of the last day, which has been echoed in so many other places, that he's going to grant relief and peace. We're going to meet him in the air, those who believe. If you're left alive, you haven't taken the mark, he will grant you relief. Everybody's, everybody's going to be transformed. While at the same time, those who are wicked, who have taken the mark, who have raged against God, they'll be destroyed. So it's, it's a bird's eye view of that whole situation. Compare this to Matthew chapter 25. There's a couple verses there that are important. The final judgment, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those, on his right, come, you are blessed by my Father, <clears throat> inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. By the way, another proof text for election and predestination. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. Now, in verse 20, he goes on to make a difference between these two types of people. But in verse 46, it ends the, the chapter with, And these will go away to internal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, you have this duality of the righteous are raised, the sheep and the goats. One is going into the kingdom or eternal state. Let's put it that way. And the other is going into destruction. So very important, very consistent that the resurrection is two, is the same thing for two types of people. Now in Matthew 16, earlier, verse 27 Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels. Again, this whole thing about coming with the angels, by the way, which there's no secret rapture. The angels are the one that are bringing you in the air to meet him. To come in with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So if you're wicked and evil, then you get justice. If you are in Christ, you get mercy. Pretty consistent. First Corinthians chapter 15 Verses twenty two through twenty six. We've talked about this one so many times, but it's worth mentioning over and over again. Verse twenty two for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So when Jesus comes back, those who belong to Christ, who are in Christ, will be resurrected. There's no other resurrection. Verse twenty four. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the most important ver- part of this, to anchor what we're talking about, which is the last enemy to be destroyed, is death. He has to rule amongst his enemies until his enemies are put under his feet. And then when he returns, he det- he destroys the Antichrist, he destroys the Antichrist system, all the wicked, all the people who took the mark of the beast. And he destroys death once and for all by transforming and resurrecting. So the people who are alive, they're going to be transformed. We get the eternal body that's not corruptible. Then the people who are dead, they're going to be raised incorruptible. So everybody's going to be incorruptible. Death is destroyed at that point. That's the last enemy. When does that happen? That happens when Jesus returns. And then he delivers the kingdom that he was already ruling in amongst his enemies, the millennial kingdom, which is happening right now. He delivers that kingdom to God the Father. And then God rules through the Trinity, through Jesus, on earth, all in all. But that's not a millennial kingdom. That's just eternity. That's the new heavens, new earth. So you see how all this comes together? But the point is this last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's at the resurrection when Jesus returns. What happens when he returns is the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Same time, same event. Look at John chapter 6. There's a lot in John. Verses 39 all the way through 54, but we're going to pick a few here. 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, he says it like several times. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, just in case you forgot. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says it four times at least. And, you know, probably he, should, he doesn't need to say it that many times, but people think that there's more than one resurrection because of this futurist idea that has invaded the church, has invaded eschatology. It's a futurist idea that looks at Revelation literally and super chronologically and physically. You're looking for physical things, and so you interpret things in a physical way. But it doesn't make sense. Everything that we've just read testifies that the resurrection happens on the last day. And the resurrection is for both the good people who are in Christ and the wicked people who rejected Christ. Everything happens at the same time. The last enemy to be destroyed is death because the resurrection happens on the last day. It all makes sense. It's all very clear. So there's nothing about this whole first resurrection thing. There's no first resurrection, second resurrection, third resurrection. There's only one resurrection. And so the question is, is John contradicting Scripture when he says the first resurrection and he's painting this picture of the first resurrection? The answer is no, because Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It's it's all written by the Holy Spirit. So this has to have a different meaning than this literal idea of a first resurrection and trying to time a first resurrection with the return of Christ and then maybe a thousand years of him reigning and then another resurrection after that, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't because nowhere else is that pictured. It's all at the same time, which makes the most sense. And again, if we remember, this is a vision. This is a vision. It's full of symbols and metaphor And and just apocalyptic themes that unless you study other books like Daniel to see how symbols really work, then you kind of get lost, really. So here's the thing. If you are born twice, you only die once, right? If I'm born again, then I only die once. If you're not born again, and if you're only born once, then you die twice. Isn't that interesting? If people are born just physically, then they'll die, and then they're going to get resurrected, and they'll die the second death, which is the lake of fire. It's the judgment, because you rejected Christ and you weren't born again. But if you're born again, though though you die, you shall live. That's what Jesus said, right? If we're born again, we will be resurrected, and over that resurrection, the second death has no power. So being born again must have something to do with this idea of a first resurrection. Now, we see that actually clarified in some of the letters written by Paul. If we look in Ephesians and Romans, there's some very telling things there. So if we jump to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, Paul writes, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, make note of the language, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a spiritual reality that Paul is talking about. We were dead in our sins and when we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, We came to life. We came to new life. We were born again. That's what being born again means. When you're born physically, you come to life. You enter the world. When you're born again, spiritually, you come to life because we were dead in our sins. And so this is very important. And if we look again in uh, Romans chapter 6, we read about a spiritual death. This is verse 3. Dead to sin, alive to God. That's the title of this section. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Get this, verse seven, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse eight, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. All of this chapter is great, but really what it's talking about is a spiritual reality. Christ died a physical death so that you and I can die a spiritual death and be born again. You can't be born again. Here's something else to consider. You can't be born again unless you experience a spiritual death. Unless you crucify the flesh, you, have, you repent. Repentance, what does repentance mean? Repent comes from the word metanoia, which is a change of mind. It's a total change of mind. So when we have that genuine repentance, when we first experience being born again, our old self dies. We never want to be that way ever again. And so that's really important because being born again and dying spiritually, which is what's required to come to Christ, you have to die to your old self, crucify the flesh. And we live anew. All of that is tied together. So the first resurrection is when we are born again. Put it all together now and compare this to actually one more verse and then we'll put it all together. John 5, verse 24 to 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So you have passed from death to life. You have been resurrected in a sense a spiritual resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, is he talking about a physical thing here? Or is he talking about the spiritually dead? The hour is now here. Remember, the kingdom has come. It's imminent. When did the kingdom get inaugurated? With Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit descended it was given freely. A ton of people joined the church. It's like over 3,000 people joined the body of Christ. They died to sin, and they were born again. That was the, the people that came to life, the first resurrection, over which the second death has no power. It was a spiritual event, just like the ruling of Christ is spiritual right now, just like the millennium is spiritual, just like the binding of Satan was spiritual. All these things are spiritually, spiritual realities. Spiritually testified things, not physical realities. If you're looking for the physical, you're not seeing the greater picture. You're not seeing the interesting and fascinating and true testimony that's happening here. You're chasing after physical carrots, like we talked about with the Israel Third Temple thing. Man, you have to stop watching what's happening in Israel all the time. It's a, it's a total distraction. It is part of a greater ploy to deceive the world, and who knows how far it's going to go. But it's definitely a deception. It's not Bible prophecy coming true. The temple was already created, and it's a spiritual reality, and it's the body of Christ, not a physical temple. So let's put it all together. There's a a new birth that happens and we come to life spiritually, when we also die, when we die to sin. In order to be free from sin, you have to die so that the law can be appeased. And Jesus died a physical death so that we could die a spiritual death. You see how that works? It's so brilliant. We can die a spiritual death so that we're free from sin, and yet we still live, and we will be eternally with Jesus because the second death will have no power over us, even though we physically will die. We experience a spiritual resurrection because we died to sin. That's what the first resurrection is. It's the only place in Scripture that talks about a first resurrection. And so if John is making that distinction, then we have to evaluate it in terms of everything we've covered, all the context that we've talked about. There's no other place in Scripture that talks about a first resurrection. And of course, we know that the devil tries to put your mind on physical fleshly realities so that you get confused at the very least, and at the very most, you create Poor, script, poor doctrines, poor theology, you get confused, you teach others the same thing, you look after fleshly things and you ignore these spiritual realities. Those who came to life in Revelation 20, 4 through 6, and were basically ruling with Christ, we're going to look at ruling in a second, but those who came to life that John saw are people who throughout the millennium have come to life through the first resurrection, which is being born again. Those who came to life were born again believers throughout the millennial age, which is the age that we're living in right now, throughout the church age. The millennium goes from Christ's ascension when he ascended. Remember, he fulfilled the vision in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man that gets presented before the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom, or to sit on the right hand and receive the kingdom and rule while his enemies are being made his footstool. All that happened after the ascension. So the millennium started at the ascension, and it's going until Christ returns, remember Corinthians, to give the kingdom back to the Father as he finishes off all the wicked, all the people who took the mark of the beast, as he kills you know, the beast system, he destroys the Antichrist, he judges the devil, he judges the wicked, and he destroys death. All of that is happening at the second coming. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So there is no physical rule after that. Jesus is at the right hand right now, just like we proved over and over again, especially in the episode on Jesus being king. He's at the right hand. He's ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet. And so all of that is happening. And during that time, while Jesus is spiritually ruling, there's a lot of people coming to to Christ, right? A lot of people being born again. Those are the people who experience the first resurrection. Because again, we were all dead to sin. But through the Holy Spirit, we gain new life. That's really what is being talked about here. So the question is, If now, if this is describing a figurative reality, a spiritual reality, then who is ruling and what's what's going on with the ruling of the saints? The people who come to life and they rule with Christ for a thousand years. So there's people who are coming to life It's talking about being born again, and they are ruling with Christ during this millennial age. What does that mean? What is it really getting at? Is it talking about people coming to life physically and and ruling with Christ on physical thrones for a physical 1,000 years? Well, again, no, it's not, because it's thousand is plural. Jesus is already reigning as king. The the first resurrection is talking about a spiritual reality because all the times mentioned in scripture about the resurrection is a singular event for both the righteous and the wicked. So something else must be going on here. And the answer exists in looking at how does Jesus define ruling? And we know because in the beginning of Revelation, he addresses the seven churches of Revelation. Now there's a whole episode we're going to do on these churches because it's a prophetic text as well as a text that is relevant to the time that it was written. There were actual seven real churches, but again, God uses physical things as types and shadows for future spiritual realities. We've talked about this plenty of times, and if you don't see this as part of your way that you look at scripture, you're really missing out on some very important things. Just like Joseph in the Old Testament was a type and shadow of the Messiah with how he was betrayed, how he suffered, then he conquered. Just how Abraham, almost, not almost, but at being asked to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, even though he had more than Isaac as a son, but he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. And he put the wood on Isaac's back. All that stuff was typifying the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Messiah, just how David was typifying the Messiah. All these different physical people who actually lived and and breathed and, and existed, while at the same time were portraying and painting shadows of a future reality that Jesus fulfilled. That's happening throughout the Bible. So if that's the case, we can look at the seven churches which existed there's a real fascinating study on these. We'll do this in a later part of this series because it's, it's in Revelation, it's towards the end. Um, it's, it's in the beginning of Revelation as a book, but it's towards the end of the series because there's a lot of other things we have to cover to get into it because it's tying into the whole timeline of this millennium. There's a lot going on over this 2,000-year period. So there's a lot of other things I want to cover before we get to that. But in the beginning of Revelation... There is a discourse between Jesus and these churches where he's giving them certain commendations. Certain, some churches don't receive a commendation, like we're the seventh church, we're the lukewarm church. We don't receive a commendation. He gives them a rebuke, he gives them an advice, and he gives them a promise. There's certain format to how he does it. And each church, he talks about what it means to conquer. There's this theme of, you know, conquering and persevering. So let's look at a couple of these verses and see what does it all add up to. In Revelation chapter 2, this is 2 through 3, and we'll look at a couple of verses. So in Revelation 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to, the eat, to eat to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if you conquer, you have eternal life. Chapter two verse ten through eleven. Do not fear that you are about to suffer. Behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's a very important sentence. Verse eleven He who has an ear, let him hear that what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So far pretty consistent themes with everything we've read. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Chapter 2, verse 26 to 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what's this morning star? The morning star is actually the prophetic word, and we see that in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. And we ha- and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will dwell. Do excuse me. To which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Such a great reminder of today's apostles and prophets who claim to be speaking on behalf of God. But anyway, the morning star is a prophetic word, so to he who conquers, you will get the morning star, and you'll be able to rule as Jesus rules in a spiritual way, right? Because he's ruling currently in a spiritual way. Revelation chapter three, verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Revelation chapter three, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 21, this is to our church, the lukewarm church, the one who conquers I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Past tense, by the way, sat down. This is past tense. This is very important because that means he's already ruling. But what do we make of all this? Well, first off, the seven churches were all under persecution. They were real churches, right? And at the same time, fascinatingly enough, they all fall into various time periods of of the church, right, as the body of believers throughout time. So that's a really fascinating study. Like I said, we'll get into that towards the end of this series, But they're all physical churches. And the context of the time that they were living in was what? Persecution. The first century of the church was madness. I mean, people were getting beheaded. People were getting persecuted like crazy, fed to lions, you know, tortured. It was crazy. It was really crazy. And so this, in the entire context of this, is persecution. So what is Jesus talking about when he is telling them to be to conquer, to be faithful until death. That's what he's talking about, to be faithful until death, to persevere. And if you persevere, what does that mean to be perseverant? Well, to be faithful unto death, to not lose faith. And if you do, what's the promise? The promise is eternal life. There's a lot of ways that is phrased, you know, eating the hidden manna, eating from the tree of life, getting the white robe of, of righteousness, you know, all these different ways of wording it, but it's all talking about the same thing. Now, mixed into that is also this idea of ruling. If you saw, there's a couple verses where there was also ruling. So having eternal life, persevering, being faithful until death, eating the hidden and manna, having a stone with your name on it, ruling, it's all the same thing. It's basically perseverance of the saints, meaning if you persevere and you have faith until death, you don't lose your faith. You don't take the mark of the beast, right? You have eternal life. You conquer because you're just like Christ conquered death. We too can conquer through him because he's going to give us eternal life. So it doesn't matter if we're being persecuted, if if we're killed, we have eternal life. That is really what it boils down to. It is an encouragement. It is strength for some really seriously difficult times that those people were going through. And it's a reminder, like, listen, you will have eternal life. You will conquer. Not, you'll be resurrected and you're going to get your own kingdom and you're going to rule on a throne and it's all this physical stuff. No, not at all. It's a spiritual conquering and a spiritual victory that we have because death has lost its sting in the resurrection. So remember that it's all about loyalty. This was about loyalty, staying true, under the heat of persecution, and it's a physical thing. I'm sorry, it's a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. Now, what about this idea of the mark of the beast? So there's a lot of things, like I said in the very beginning, that are interwoven into this chapter of Revelation, especially these couple verses. And it seems that because the mark of the beast is mentioned, that this whole coming to life and ruling for a thousand years seems like it's a future event because obviously the mark of the beast hasn't happened. And so if the mark of the beast is mentioned, it seems like the coming to life is after that. Let's read Revelation 20 verse 4 and see what it says. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Keep note of this sentence for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And... Those who had not worshiped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They, meaning these two people from the the souls who had been beheaded and the people who had not worshiped the beast and basically got killed for it. They came to life and reigned with, uh, with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So. What is it talking about? Well, there's a couple things. So first off, remember, the, the audience, the immediate audience of this were churches facing persecution. Now, we will talk about the mark of the beast as a specific physical reality. And what it could be, that's not going to be for several chapters down the road of the series, but we will talk about it in depth. We're not going to talk about it today because it's just it's one big can of worms. But suffice it to say that There have been many times throughout history where this idea of worship or die has been implemented by the Romans, by the Catholic Church, throughout history. Look at the Inquisition. Look at the first couple centuries of the Christian Church. I mean, Christians were murdered brutally for not bowing down to Nero, for now, you know, basically bowing down to pagan deities, and, and Roman emperors. And so this has been throughout history. Throughout the history of the church, we see that the type for the mark of the beast, not its full fulfillment, which is at the end of the age, but its type, a foreshadowing, a a ripple, right, an echo of it, has been throughout history. And that's certainly true. But remember that Revelation is a symbolic book. And so if Jesus is King right now, we know that. We know that Jesus has to be King right now, and all the other things we talked about with Satan being bound. There's no rapture. Everything happening at the same time. The last thing to, to be destroyed is death, etc., etc. There's another way to understand this. There has to be, because it doesn't make sense to force the perspective that this is. There's a physical rule that's happening after the mark of the beast, and then people are resurrected again after the thousand years. That doesn't work with everything that Scripture says. So there has to be a different way, because spiritually it works. If the first resurrection is talking about being born again, and conquering, as Christ just relayed to us in the beginning of Revelation, is talking about a spiritual conquering, where we conquer over death, we conquer over persecution and evil, because we have faith in Jesus and we will be resurrected. And through our resurrection, through our faith, we will be conquerors. And we will rule with Christ. Because Christ is ruling. He is ruling right now. He's ruling over life and death. He's ruling over sin and evil and everything. He, The Satan was bound at the cross. He is king. And so, through our faith in him, we can share in that dominion. Remember, he has made us a kingdom of priests. We get to... Inherit that which he inherits. Now, it's not our inheritance, but it's his inheritance, and he's generously sharing it with us, right? So it's our inheritance, too, in that sense. So all of this is talking about a spiritual reality. Now, if you remember from Revelation 6, there were souls that were feeling discouraged. And we'll talk about what those souls meant. But in verse 9, it says, when we opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be made complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, first point with all of this. Okay. John was writing to the churches. Of Asia Minor, and they were under persecution, serious persecution. They needed encouragement. They needed to be reminded of their overcoming through Christ so that they could stay strong and persevere even until death. That's really the immediate context. All of this is about staying strong, having faith, and reminding them that you are conquering through Christ because he's conquered. Because he's conquered death, so will you. Do not be afraid. That's really what it boils down to. I think that's relevant for our generation too because I believe that the mark of the beast will be implemented in our generation. In its fullness, remember, there's a lot of types and shadows throughout history, but in its fullness, it will be implemented. And the reason it will be implemented is because we have digital currency. There is no other point in history where total control over what you buy and sell has ever been achieved. But with digital currency and digital everything... It's now possible, and that's why I believe it's in our generation. But the second point is this, and I think this is more profound. If we take into consideration that Jesus is already reigning, it's a spiritual millennium, if this millennium is describing this period of time where people are coming to life, meaning the first resurrection, meaning being born again, dying to sin, the church age, the gospel spreading, and they're reigning with Christ, why are they reigning with Christ? Because they're being persecuted and yet conquering despite their persecution. They're coming to life, meaning they're born again, and they're reigning with Christ, meaning they are overcoming death through their faith. They were going to reign with him during this period of time. There's a lot of people throughout the last 2,000 years that have been martyred, and through their martyrdom, through their strong faith, they have overcome death because they will be resurrected. So this is all talking about a spiritual reality. Now, if we look at the specific words that are used, the, the sentence that I told you to keep in mind of is, is a timestamp. So if we look in Revelation 20, verse 4, there's a timestamp, And that's why I think this is so perfectly woven into everything else we've talked about. In verse 4, it says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So there's a specific way that people are dying. It's be, being beheaded. And then he says, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the, the timestamp here is very specific. It's people who basically got beheaded and then people who didn't take the mark of the beast. Those are two types of martyrs, right? Now, those martyrs fit perfectly well with history because the people who got beheaded, That was in the very first century of the church, and we'll look at that. And then the people who uh, didn't take the mark of the beast, that's at the very end of the age. So what is this saying? It's saying the completeness of time throughout this millennial reign, where Christ is reigning while his enemies are put under his feet, meaning the beginning of the church, where people are going to be headed, to the very end where people will be killed for not taking the mark and worshiping the beast. That entire period, People are going to be coming to life, meaning they're going to be born again. They're going to be reigning with Christ, meaning they're going to be overcoming death because they're going to be martyred and they're going to be strong in their faith. And they will conquer. That's what it's saying. It's It's a complete, again, add it to this idea of a thousand. Again, it's thousands, but even the, the number 1,000 is a spiritually important number. It's it's 10, which is completeness, to the third power, which is three is another when you, whenever you have a, th- a three repetitions of something in the Bible, especially in Hebrew culture, three repetitions was like, that's it. It's, it's the ultimate completeness. And so a thousand, even if it was a thousand literal years that, that this was saying, but it's not, the point is completion. Throughout this entire period, God's will is absolute. People will overcome. People will come to Jesus. People will hear the gospel. They'll overcome death. They'll reign just like Christ conquered, because they're they are going to overcome evil and persecution, and they will be resurrected. So that's what it's saying. It's encouragement for the churches of Revelation at the time, which were being persecuted very heavily, and it's encouragement for us throughout history. Anybody who's reading that verse, chapter 20, verse 4, at any point in time can say, oh, okay, well, I'm not... The mark of the beast hasn't happened yet, so I'm somewhere in between and I'm getting persecuted, but I'm part of this group because it's a complete group. It's from the very beginning to the very end. You see how that works? So I hope you see that. It's 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 just a complete group of time from the beginning from the end. And it's really just about the faithful overcoming. It's just, again, it's about perseverance, about perseverance of the saints and obtaining eternal life. When they ruled Spiritually, it's not about ruling on physical thrones. It's how Christ overcame death through his faith. It's the same thing. And being born again is the first resurrection. So all of that is not a physical reality. It is painting a picture of the church age, of the martyrdom age. Now, again, all this stuff will make even more sense once we get into specific time prophecies, which we will get into. There's a lot to talk about the seven churches prophecy, how this relates to different stages of the church, Um, you know, stuff in Daniel about the little horn of the Antichrist. There's so much to cover that will make so much more sense when you look back at Revelation 20, verse 4, and say, oh, okay, that makes total sense that there's a spiritual kingdom right now where Christ is reigning while his enemies are being put under his feet. During that time, there's a lot going on. There's evil people persecuting the church. People are dying. People are coming to Christ being born again. That's what all of this is talking about. It's it's very rich, it's very complex, but it's very beautiful as well. So now, what about Satan being released (laughs) And, and the timing of being released? That was one of the things, if you recall from that episode, that I used to be a believer in this whole idea of a future millennial reign of Christ. However, with that being said, the biggest, one of the biggest, there's a lot of problems with it, but one of the biggest problem is, why would Satan be released after a thousand years of Jesus reigning on the earth in his glorious form, where, where there's what? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. There's no enemies. After he returns, death has been destroyed. So, there are no more enemies. Who's the enemy? That's why this, is, this doesn't make sense. But even so... The explanation given by futurists and by dispensationalists is that, well, there's some people that are going to make it into the kingdom and, you know, they're going to reproduce. So there's death, apparently, in the millennial kingdom, a physical kingdom, of course, not the real millennial kingdom, which is happening right now. Of course, there's death because Jesus is reigning while his enemies are under his feet. Death isn't destroyed until the very end. So that makes sense. But Jesus being on earth physically in his glorious form, literally the presence of God on earth physical presence, incarnate, in in all power and glory, and there's sin and death, that doesn't make sense. But either way, the explanation is that Satan needs to, you know, test people who've been born because they never got a chance to test, and so it's supposed to somehow redeem God's character and prove that even in paradise, people will make a mistake. But look, all this stuff doesn't make any sense. It just really doesn't, because that was already proven in the Garden of Eden. That was already done. So why would God do that again? It doesn't make any sense. And again, if Christ returns, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There are no more enemies. After God's wrath has been poured out, after all the bold judgments, after the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous, there are no more enemies. It's eternity. So the millennial reign is, the future millennial reign is nonsense. It's a deception. And Probably for good reason, because I think that's what they're trying to engineer. So many people believe in a physical future reign of Christ that I think they're going to try to counterfeit a millennial reign with all this Third Temple stuff and the futurist interpretation of things. Remember, the devil always wants you to look in the physical realm. And people are looking after a physical reign. Well, what if a false Christ comes along? What if the devil masquerades as Jesus? And, okay, the millennial reign is here now. And everybody says, oh, we have all this technology, and it's just beautiful, and it's a golden age. And unless you worship this false Jesus, then you'll be one of the enemies that has to be put under his feet. See how all that kind of comes together? And I don't know if that's the case. I think it's a possibility. But if that is what's going to happen, then a lot of people are going to be deceived. Just imagine, just imagine how crazy that would be. But this whole thing with Satan being released is really something now we have to re-examine. Because if if the millennial reign is spiritual, if Satan was bound at the cross, and, you know, the, the thousand reign is not some literal future thing, then the question is, when is Satan released? Well, we know that the millennium covers a period of tribulation and martyrdom and persecution from the beginning of the church, which is the beheading, right? The beheading of the saints, all the way to the mark of the beast. Now, I didn't talk about this, but I want to just pull up a an article. And this is this is myth busting ancient Rome throwing Christians to lions. It's an article about you know some of the things that they were doing basically in, in the past. So, just this section I want to read. Not just lions. The punishments meted out to Christians who admitted their religion and refused to sacrifice varied enormously. In the 1st and early 2nd centuries AD, meaning the first church, Christians who were Roman citizens, including the Apostle Paul, were executed by beheading, which was quick and merciful. Later in the 2nd century, beheading was a privilege to which only the highest-ranking citizens were automatically entitled. The lesser sort, as they were known, were subject to more violent punishments. These included being crucified, burned to death, and attacked by beasts. So, Case in point, right? The, the beginning of the church, what they were doing was beheading people. Are they going to behead people for the mark of the beast? Who knows? I don't know. But the beginning was, the timestamp was beheading. That's the type of death you're going to have. And then the mark of the beast, however they're going to kill people for that, but that's the time frame. It's the two timestamps to say from the beginning to the end. It's marking those two uh, points, with the type of deaths of the martyrs. In the beginning, martyrs were getting uh, beheaded, and at the end, they're getting killed for now worshiping the beast or taking the mark. So, but with that, that whole period of time is the millennium. It's a spiritual reign where Satan is being bound. He's raging against God. He's raging against the nation. He's trying to get people to create this one world system and He's fighting against the gospel. The gospel's going out to all, every nation. It's a crazy time that we're living in. We're living in that time. But Satan gets released towards the end of that period. And the question is, when does that happen? Now, we know that there will be believers left alive in the final generation where Christ returns. That's true. Some are going to get killed for not taking the mark, which is what Revelation 20 attests to, right? the people who were beheaded, and the people who were killed for not taking the mark. There will be some that are left alive because those are going to be carried up into the air when Jesus returns by the angels. So Satan has to be released at some point to rally the nations and unite them for battle at Armageddon against Jesus. We know that. Now that part hasn't happened yet. But there are some other things that may have happened that give us a clue as to when this whole timing of the release of Satan might happen. The question is this, are we living in the time that Satan has been released? I believe so. And we'll talk about this more in the future specifically. But there are two ways to look at this. There's a literal way and there's a metaphorical way. If you read Revelation 20 literally, then... Sometime after the mark is implemented, because the mark of the beast and people getting killed for not taking the mark is is the deadline. You see how, again, John says that from beheading to the mark of the beast, that's the time of the millennial kingdom. So if we're reading it literally, then sometime after the mark of the beast is implemented and people start getting killed, then Satan is released to basically organize the nations for battle and and get the final battle going in Armageddon, where the kings of the earth will battle against the second coming of Christ, and they'll lose. That's the literal way to read it. Now, if you read this more metaphorically, which I do, I think it's, you know, this is not, we have to nitpick details in the sense of literal physical details. I think there's spiritual realities being discussed here. If you read it read it more metaphorically or symbolically, the little time that he's released for, could be a longer period of time. And we'll talk about this in a future episode a little more, but in Revelation 17, here's why, here's my logic, follow my logic here. Verse 8 says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, meaning the people who were never chosen to be saved, they will marvel after the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So the beast that comes from the bottomless pit, from the abyss, is about to rise. There's some. There's a marker there where the bottomless pit is being opened, and there's something that comes out of it, a beast. A beast is a power. It's a political power. It's not a person. And we'll talk about that in a future episode as well, because that's a whole discussion. But Revelation 17, verse 12 And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So this talks about basically, again, this whole idea of the kings of the earth uniting with the beast, the political power, giving them their power, getting manipulated, and at the end they actually turn on the beast and devour her and destroy her. So all that that I just said is future. That hasn't happened yet. The, the beast has possibly arisen, is rising, right? That's already happened, number one, in Revelation seventeen eight. But number two, which is this whole idea of the kings uniting and having this one world system where they pledge their allegiance and their resources to the beast, that has not happened. The war in Armageddon has not happened. Obviously, that's a future event. The Mark of the Beast is a future event. So we are somewhere in between. The beast that rose from the bottomless pit, and again, we'll talk about this in a future episode, so stay tuned. These things are very involved discussions. But my argument is that the beast, the system, remember beasts are systems and and kingdoms and powers and political entities. That's already arose from the bottomless pit. So if you read this from a more metaphorical period, a more metaphorical way, and you see the little time as a, a metaphorical period of time, possibly maybe 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, I don't know, something like that, not like two weeks, right? Then I see this as we're in that little time right now. And it doesn't, it's not a stretch of the imagination because if you look around the world, deception has come to an all-time high. I mean, it is just crazy. And we'll get into how that's manifesting. There's a lot to talk about but we are living in the time, I believe, that Satan has been released. So, in either case, there's enough time for some believers to be left alive. So, whether you read this literally, where Satan is released right after the Mark of the Beast is implemented, and then he gathers all the nations to to do battle, or he's released, you know, overlaying the Millennial Kingdom. It's not exact. It's not like, okay, this has ended, now release Satan. It's these are different pictures of the same thing from different angles, right? So if you see a metaphorical time period, then Satan is released earlier, right? He's he's already released, I believe, and we'll, we'll look at how history proves that, I believe. But he is working slowly to bring the nations to a one-world system, a one-world religion that will give their power to him and surrender their authority and then he'll be able to gather the nations for battle against christ in either case we are probably either in that time or close to that time depending on how you read this and it really you know it doesn't you shouldn't be dogmatic about this it's not that big of a deal the point is that we're in the millennial kingdom that there is no future millennial reign and then the release of satan The release of Satan is towards the end of our age. We are in that time period now. So we are most likely either very close or living in the time that Satan has been released. And there's a lot of things that have happened in the last 150, 200 years that are very telling, let's put it that way, that Satan, I believe, has been released. Now, the final topic of today that I want to address are some Old Testament prophecies that seem to have talked about a future millennial reign that a lot of people who subscribe to futurism, especially dispensationalists, like to bring up, like Isaiah 17, like Zechariah 14, Isaiah 65, that's the prophecies we're going to look at. And all of these prophecies have to do with kind of end time stuff in some sense. Zechariah, um, or I should say Isaiah 17 doesn't, but people use it for... A future event, because they project everything into the future. And the question is, if these are not talking about what they think they're talking about, then that's another nail in the coffin for dispensationalism. So let's jump into Isaiah 17. And this is about Damascus, an oracle concerning Damascus. And the point is that Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. That's what this prophecy is talking about. And the question is, has This already been fulfilled. A lot of people say, oh, the war in Damascus, and it's going to be, it's going to cease to be a city. So if you see in the next coming weeks and months and years, something about Damascus, and there's an attack on Damascus, and it's leveled, and now people saying Bible prophecy fulfilled, this is a staged thing. Now, of course, if that happens, it'll probably be very real destruction, but it's being done to convince people that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled and to put your attention on Israel and all this other stuff. But this has already been fulfilled thousands of years ago, and I can prove it to you. There was an attack by the Syrians. and We'll look at this article. Has Has the destruction of Damascus been fulfilled? Prophecy expert Dr. Mark Hitchcock writes, I believe it makes more sense to hold that Isaiah 17 was fulfilled in the 8th century B.C., it was almost 3000 years ago when both damascus the capital of syria <coughs> excuse me and samaria the capital of israel were hammered by the assyrians in that conquest both damascus and samaria were destroyed just as isaiah 17 predicts which by the way is way more relevant than isaiah predicting damascus would be destroyed you know thousands of years later doesn't make any sense according to history tiglath-pileser iii pushed vigorously to the west, and in 734, the Assyrians advanced and laid siege to Damascus, which fell two years later in 732 BC. In other words, we don't need to look for fulfillment of Isaiah 17 today because it has already occurred, taking place in 732 BC. Look into it. The larger context of Isaiah also supports this interpretation. For example, in the previous chapter, Isaiah speaks against Moab. This prophecy has already been fulfilled as well, Many of the predictions in this section of Isaiah were related to events that took place during or near the lifetime of Isaiah. Of course, that makes sense. Not thousands of years later. Those who object to this view usually do so based on the thought that Damascus will cease to be a city, which is 17 verse 1. However, this is not a statement about Damascus for the entirety of history, but rather during that time period. Makes sense. This cannot be the deciding factor regarding whether the prophecy has already been fulfilled or not. So again, it's just taking things out of context. Isaiah 17 is talking about a reality that came and passed during his lifetime or around there. That was almost 3,000 years ago. He's not talking about a reality that would happen 3,000 years from then. people who believe that are taking this so out of context and trying to fit it into that, you know, square peg and round hole. Everything has to do with Israel, because again, everybody's eyes are on Israel, which they shouldn't be. The real Antichrist power on the earth is the papacy. It's not what's happening in Israel. That's just the little carrot they're hanging for you and using dialectics and staged events to bring about their false prophecy, their false futurist prophecy that they invented and created to take attention off the papacy so that you would believe in a future antichrist in a future Israel and a temple and all these things that are just so delightful to the eyes but they're completely they're complete deceptions. So we can't get caught up with this stuff. Now look at Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 11. So we're going to look at this prophecy the coming day of the Lord. And I want you I'm going to read the whole thing. It's it's a long prophecy. It goes all the way to verse 21 but i want you to pay attention to verses the first couple verses all the way through 11 and then it it changes changes tone kind of or certain things are said that that should be immediate red flags and again my my goal with this series is not to explain every little thing in scripture because first off i can't and second off there's not enough time but my goal is to really give you the skills to look at things and say you know There's enough in here for me to discredit what other people are saying about it. Let me think differently about this. That's the question. It's not about mastering or understanding every single little detail of every single little verse, of every single little chapter of of proof text. It's about learning to understand the basics, right? If you understand the basics of what Scripture says, then when you read something that's maybe new or presented to you in a certain way, And it says something very telling that contradicts other places. That should be a red flag. And that's what we're going to talk about with Zechariah 14. Because a lot of people use this to say, oh, see, it's proof of a millennial reign in the future. So the coming day of the Lord. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and His name one. The Lord, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of the, the tower of Hemanel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited. For there shall never be again a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So, so far, so good. I mean, there's a lot of end times imagery, even though this was written, again, several hundred years before the ministry of Christ. It's the Old Testament. There's a lot of things that kind of resonate with the day of the Lord that John writes about, the new Jerusalem, the, the Bible of Armageddon. There's some common themes. But now pay attention to the rest of this. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. So is there going to be a plague that happens during this physical future millennial reign? That that should be a red flag. That that's not what it's saying. On that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Here's an important verse, and to keep the feast of booths. Keep that in mind. Verse 17, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of Hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells and horses, here's another important thing, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar. Verse 21, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice, another important sentence, may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord or of hosts on that day. A lot of stuff in that, but a couple things to keep in mind. Feast of Booths. So, according to a literal dispensational reading of this, when Jesus reigns in the future, in his physical throne, people will be required to keep the Feast of Booths and to sacrifice. Did you pick that up in those last final verses, that is really significant. Do you really think that that's what would happen? that we would go back to a sacrificial system and a legalistic system where if you don't keep the Feast of Booths, there's going to be consequences? It doesn't make any sense. And so we have to raise an eyebrow. We have to object to a physical reading of this because that's not what this is talking about. The horses, another thing is, the horses were not holy animals. They're not clean animals. But yet in this... It talks about the bells and the horses will be holy to the Lord, like the ho- even the horses are going to be holy. So it can't be possibly talking about this Old Testament reality that's going to be resurrected, basically, when Jesus returns. That's not at all what's it's talking about. What it is talking about, though, is a future reality, the eternal state. And we have to remember the context is so important. The Old Testament prophets, like Zechariah, did not have... An understanding a revelation of the Trinity of the great you know gospel of grace, of being born again, of the new heavens and new, new earth, you know all these things that we have the pleasure and the luxury of. that's why we're the lukewarm church by the way, we're the richest church. Laodicea was the richest church in Asia Minor, but we are in that church today. we're the richest church because we have the fullness of revelation. we get to look back in history. And see all these things that have happened, and we get to understand context. We get to see, we're not stuck in the Old Testament with more stuff to happen. Do you see that importance there? We are in the end times. We get to see everything that has happened and put it together and understand what's going on. And that's really valuable because the people in the Old Testament, like Zechariah, didn't have these revelations. I mean, there were prophets. God showed them things and had them write certain things, but they wrote according to the time that they lived in. The metaphors that are used about horses having bells and being holy to the Lord and the feast of booths and sacrifices obviously aren't talking about literal things. They're using physical realities that people knew and painting them in new ways that people would be like, huh, imagine trying to teach people who were stuck in a legalistic system tried to introduce to them slowly this idea of like being saved by grace being born again a spiritual millennial reign and then the resurrection happening all at the same time all these ideas are huge ideas that took thousands of years to build up to and then Jesus revealed them all but the prophets they weren't the messiah obviously they they revealed chunks of it and in, in pictures that they could use, you know, they used physical pictures that the people could relate to that they understood and they were just writing what God told them to write. There was some times when the prophet Daniel didn't understand his own visions. He was tormented because he didn't understand like, what am I just writing down here? Like, okay, I'm going to write it down, but I don't understand it. And he he begged Gabriel, the, the archangel, to explain it to him. And, you know, he begged God to give him the answer and God gave him the answer. And so, point is this. The, the prophets who were writing things down, they were writing because it was being revealed to them. It doesn't mean they understood or had full revelation of what they were writing down. They were just vessels because just writing what God told them to write down. They were using Old Testament realities that people could understand to paint a future reality that is very different from their time. So, It's not talking about a time when there's going to be sacrifices being offered again. That is complete nonsense. That alone should make you reject the dispensational idea that this verse or this whole passage, as it says, chapter 14 of Zechariah, is somehow talking about a future millennial reign where Jesus is reigning physically on the earth and mandating that people keep the Feast of Booths and, you know, making sacrifices again. I mean, that's just nonsense. That is nonsense. And some people say, "Well, oh, you see, that's proof that Israel has to bring up their Levitical system. That's a slap in the face to God to believe that the physical temple that they're building is somehow, that's what God wanted. No, the temple is the church. It's the body of believers. We prove that. That's what the apostles thought. That's what Jesus taught. Everybody thought it was a, phys- a spiritual reality. So this idea that the Jews have to have their own special plan of salvation and bring back their Levitical law and sacrifices, and that's a good thing, that's an affront to the gospel because they need the gospel. They don't need to bring back their sacrificial system. That's an insult to Jesus. And we should be praying for them to, to hear the gospel, and we should do what we can, not support them to to go into even more error than they already are. I mean, that's just really bad. The final Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 65. And that's in verse 20 through 22. I'm just going to read it here. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So this is the chapter, the title of this chapter is called New Heavens and New Earth. And people use this, again, if you're reading this physically and literally, just like how dispensation was read, they say, oh, see, They're still going to die, but they're just going to live much longer. And so there's going to be death in the millennial kingdom. And then you construct this whole aberrant theology based on something that you take out of context. Because so far, again, if you understand your basics, Jesus has to be ruling as king right now. The devil is bound. He lost his power over death when Jesus was resurrected. There is no pre-tribulation rapture. Everything happens at the same time. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. That happens when Jesus returns because the resurrection is all at the same time. It's the wicked and the righteous that are resurrected. All these basics, if you understand these, then it's very easy to read something like this or I should say to hear somebody say, oh, see, it proves that there's someone and say, no, it doesn't because X, Y, and Z. There is no, there is no people dying during the millennial kingdom in a physical future reality because we're all transformed into resurrected bodies that do not die. And so where are people dying? That's, and again, (laughs) Jesus is reigning right now. So if you believe that he is not reigning, that he has to reign in the future, then he is also not priest right now and we don't have the gospel. So you see the, the consequence of these beliefs. They're really quite silly. They really are. And I I just hope that more people who are get you know getting suckered into this dispensational way of thinking can just wake up and see the truth because their eyes are on physical things. They're on fleshly things and physical realities. So now, Isaiah 65. What is it talking about? Well, it's talking about new heavens and new earth. It's talking about the eternal state. It's obviously it's talking about the eternal state, meaning once Christ returns, new heavens and new earth. We're all living in eternity. However that's going to be, it's going to be amazing. I'm sure there'll be work for us to do. I'm sure we'll have our own little places to live. But either way, it's the eternal state. So we know Revelation, it happens after the resurrection. Christ returns, there's a resurrection, the wicked are destroyed, and the rest of us enter eternity. Everyone lives forever at that point in time. And remember that everyone's resurrected at the same time. Remember that those who are alive when Jesus returns are transformed. Everybody is taken care of. (laughs) So this is figurative. So what, what do we make of this then? Do we read it literally? Well, no, we don't. Just like with Zechariah 14, this is Old Testament people trying to understand something that they couldn't understand. You know, you have this whole thing, like even with David and the Trinity, where David acknowledges that there's the Lord, Yahweh, but then there's like another Lord, because they knew the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord was basically God, but in a corporeal form, but yet he was different from God. And again, remember the two powers in heaven theory, or theology, that the Jews had up until basically Jesus came, and then after Jesus, they declared it was a heresy. God forbid anybody make any connections to Jesus. But the Jews believed in a two powers in heaven because they're trying to explain this whole idea that God is transcendent, God is you know, everywhere, but at the same time he has a physical manifestation and a body. In Genesis, God was walking through the garden. Adam heard God's footsteps. You don't have footsteps unless you have a body. And yet there's also the transcendent God that's outside of time and space. So the whole idea of a trinity was throughout the Old Testament. People like David struggle with that. They didn't know, they didn't have the full revelation of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How does that work? Not not like we understand fully how that works, but we certainly have the full revelation of scripture. And so the point is that these people were doing the best they could and receiving what they got from God and relaying it. So this is Old Testament language that is designed to paint a picture of like, oh wow, people are gonna, the the person who dies to be 100, that's gonna be, like a curse if you die at a hundred. So this, oh man, people must be living for a long time in this new heavens and new earth. That's the point. It's a metaphorical, poetic language designed to use, you know, terms and, and pictures that people were familiar with at the time to paint something that was so far in the future and so far removed from their existing revelation at the time that that was the only way to describe it. So this is figurative language. Christ revealed all the truth, and of course we can look at that and see the parallels to Revelation, Then you have this new earth, all the letters, the gospels, to talk about the resurrection. All that stuff makes sense when you have the New Testament. But if you just have the Old Testament and you just read literally and physically, then you're gonna get lost, and even worse, you're gonna create some really poor theology. So, Conclusion, final thoughts. All these Old Testament passages used by people who believe in dispensationalism have either been fulfilled, like the Damascus prophecy, or they're figurative. They're figurative language designed to portray a spiritual future reality that these people simply didn't have the full revelation of. And they're using Old Testament language that people can understand. They were heavily steeped in a ritualistic, ceremonial legalistic system, trying to understand something that's completely opposite of that. Like the horses with the bells, and it says holy to God on them. It's like, wow, how could that be? Well, yeah, that's the power of grace. It's not going to be literal horses with bells. It's, you're done with this legalistic stuff. The Old Testament writers were writing in their limited Old Testament knowledge. They didn't have the full revelation. They had the Old Covenant and they had their limited understanding, and so they would just communicate what God was giving them. And God chose to give them limited pieces of information because Jesus was the one who would reveal everything. Now, there's no mention of a thousand years in any of these passages. Not in Zechariah 14, not in Isaiah 65, and several others that I didn't cover. But ultimately, they all fall into the same group. Either these things have been fulfilled, or these are Old Testament language, this Old Testament language, talking about future realities that were revealed in the New Testament that only people could understand in in those types of words. But there's no mention of a thousand-year literal period of, of Jesus reigning or the Messiah reigning on earth. None. No mention of millennial reign. No mention of any of that. It's all inferred because it's taken out of context. That's really what's happening. Remember, Jesus is already king. He has to be king. So this is not talking about a literal millennium with sacrifices, with the Feast of Booths, with a separate plan of salvation for the Jews, with a third temple, physical temple, with, you know, sin and death while Jesus is physically present on the earth in his glorious form? I don't think so. When he's going to be physically present on the earth, everything will live forever. It's going to be paradise. There's not going to be sin and death. That's nonsense. Those are just figurative words used to describe the eternal state. So, I hope that this has given you some clarity on Revelation 20. Remember, there's a lot of symbolic language in Revelation, you know, throughout Revelation, but especially this whole thing with the Millennial Kingdom. I hope that these few points, the idea about Satan being released, the idea about the first resurrection, about ruling and reigning being a spiritual thing, just like it is for Jesus, and conquering through faith, and also with these Old Testament prophecies. All those have brought some clarity to the objections that there are with the millennial reign being right now. Now, again, I know a lot of people say, well, how can Jesus be reigning right now? Look at the world around you. Well, yeah, look at the world around you. Again, I believe that Satan's been released. The Bible tells us that he has to reign to be priest as well, and he has to reign while his enemies are being put under his feet. Are his enemies alive right now? Yes, they are. Is death still alive? Yes. So that makes sense. It's a spiritual reign. We shouldn't look after physical things like the apostles did. If you recall, they're like, oh, Jesus, are you going to bring the kingdom back to Israel now? Are you going to bring this physical fleshly world kingdom back to Israel, the glory that we once had with Solomon? That's what they were wanting. They didn't realize that the kingdom was a spiritual reality that would take many... thousands of years and it would culminate of course in Jesus return, the destruction of evil and then the the culmination of all things of course there will be some physical reality that we're all going into but that's not a millennial kingdom that's just the eternal state where yeah we'll live forever we'll have probably our own little houses own little vineyards who knows I'm sure that God has something planned that we could not even possibly imagine but until then don't be deceived do not be deceived by this whole, future, millennial reign, physical reign, and all of the things that are happening in Israel. It is just a deception. It's a deception designed for... (laughs) It's brilliantly designed. It really is. Remember, dispensationalism came up because they were trying to distract people from recognizing that the papacy was fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. It really has. So they had to create a counter-narrative. The counter-narrative is the futurist eschatology, of all this physical stuff, a physical temple, a physical antichrist that will walk in the temple and proclaim himself to be God, they're probably going to stage that. And then people will believe that prophecy has been fulfilled, and then if there's a false Jesus, again, people are going to fall for it really bad. I mean, we're we're living in some crazy times. And if you do believe that Satan's been released, then that should really perk your eyes and ears up, because there's a lot of deception And there will be only more. So until then, I hope this has strengthened you. has given you some ammunition to fight against that deception. And we'll see you next time. God bless.